You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. look like in your life for the next 30, 45 minutes to radically and completely obey exactly what the Holy Spirit says to you in the next few minutes. That passage that I read, it was a time in heaven, a time that will be of worship, where everything and all the brokenness, all the things that we've endured on this planet through the fall will all be once and forever gone. And the only right response then and now is to fall on our faces before a holy God. Now, I don't know what obedience looks like to you today in this moment, but I believe the Holy Spirit's going to speak to you, and your only response to whatever the Holy Spirit's going to say to you is, yes, Lord, in worship, in honor, in obedience. You see, I'm convinced that it's not more knowledge we need. It's more obedience. The command that Jesus gave to these disciples and to us to go make disciples and teaching them to obey, most of us in this room, I'm going to take a wild guess, most of us in this room have have kind of been in the South most of our lives, not all of you. I'm looking at some of you and going, no, that's not me. But you've been around this area long enough. You've been in this church long enough. You've been in a church long enough that you've heard the gospel even in, the, even in the brokenness of a preacher proclaiming it, you have heard the truth. I, th- I think you know exactly what God is asking you to do. I don't think it's a mystery at all. I think the problem is not the knowledge. I think the problem is the obedience. Both for lost and for born again. We're going to look today at some radical obedience. In the early stages of this beautiful and powerful move of God called the church. Last weekend, Pastor Bobby and myself had the distinct privilege of traveling down, traveling down to El Paso, Texas. A couple of years ago, a man by the name of Tom Sylvia stood right here and talked to you about God's calling on his life to go to El Paso. Somewhere he's not from. His wife is from New Jersey. He's originally from Tennessee, spent most of his life in North Carolina. That that God had convinced him and his wife, Carissa, and their two small children, Miles and Evie, Miles is four and Evie's now six, to uproot their family, move to an area that is predominantly, predominantly Hispanic, to try to learn Spanish, and to start a new work of God. Last Sunday was their first 
worship service as Sun City Church of El Paso, Texas. This church has been financially supporting them for the last year. We're going to be supporting them this year. And it was an absolute privilege to be there with this new body. They have about 25 core people, a core team. And you know how many people were at the worship service Sunday? 72 people. 72. That is awesome. And not only that, when Tom and his family moved down there, they had no connections at all in El Paso. And since that time, God has brought 20 to 25 other people, families, all young families, who've been praying and asking for God to do something in their city. Now, do you think it's a coincidence that these people in El Paso are praying for God to do a new work and God puts it on the heart of a young family to uproot their family and move to El Paso? I don't think so. Not only that, God moved in another young family's heart up in Colorado to also come to the same area. Now, Brant and his family were working on starting a new church plant. Tom and his family are working on a new church plant. And one day, out of nowhere, they're introduced to one another. Two men who have the same exact viewpoint of the church, two men who have exactly the same doctrinal convictions, two guys who've been called to come to this area, and you know what they do? Instead of starting two separate works, you know what they do? They join together. Ah, that's awesome stuff, folks, I'm telling you. Just so happens that Tom was worried about the preaching side of things because he doesn't really feel that preaching per se is his call. He loves discipleship, one-on-one in evangelism. That's his calling. Well, guess where Brant is, is gifted? preaching. You see, God does some beautiful things when we radically obey Him. I want to show you a picture up on the screen. So this church is meeting at a high school called El Dorado High School. That's that little red flag right in the middle of uh, that triangle, or kind of off to the left a little bit. And we haven't been there, down there long, and we were, we were meeting with some of the folks, and they kept talking about the triangle, the triangle, the triangle. The first day we were there on Friday, Bobby and I spent all day in the car with Tom because, Tom, I love being around people who are excited about reaching their city. You talk about a guy who's excited about being where he is right now. He drove us all over that city. We, El Paso is 683,000 people. The city itself comes right up against the border wall of Juarez, Mexico. That border that you've been talking about, that border crossing you've been hearing in the news, is right there 15 minutes from, from this church. That triangle right there, you can drive around that triangle in less than 20 minutes. Do you know how many people are inside that triangle? There are 80,000 people inside that triangle. That's hard to imagine. But Bobby and myself and Tom went out on Saturday going door to door right behind the high school. And we were out there for about an hour and a half. And we, it's house after house after house. These houses are inches apart. So it is a lot of people in a relatively small area. And guess how many other churches there are in that triangle right there that's preaching the gospel? None. Sun City Church is the only church in that triangle of 80,000 people who do not know Jesus Christ, have never heard the gospel, and God led this young family to go to El Paso. Now, I want you to know that as as I talk with them and as we prayed together, There is this combination of excitement and fear and trembling. 
Because the obvious question here, how is Sun City Church with 74 people, really 20 to 25 people who are, who are following Jesus, we don't know about the rest of them, how in the world is that 20 to 25 going to impact 80,000 people? Now, it's at this moment, if we're not careful, this is where pessimism comes in. Let, let, me, let me describe what that sounds like. Well, I've never seen God do anything like that in my lifetime, and I've been following Jesus for 20, 30, 40 years. I've never seen a move like that. The only thing I can remember is there have been a few revival services I went to that, that God broke out and did some amazing things, but I have never seen nor have I ever heard of a county where I've lived where 80,000 people came to faith in Christ. Have you heard of anything like that? I haven't heard of anything like that. So then, so then the next obvious thing that we begin to think is as well, if it hasn't happened, it's not going to happen. Now, let me be very clear about something. If, if 80,000 people aren't being reached, if, if people are not hearing about Jesus, that's on the church, folks. That's not on God. God has made all the preparations necessary for the gospel to go forth. What it really comes down to is obedience. That's what it really comes down to. Is are we going to be obedient in what God has said to us about who we are, our identity in Christ, and what that means for not only the nations, but for Robinson County? Let me tell you about another interesting set of uh, statistics. So El Paso is 80,000 people, and I, I'll put this graphic up next week because I didn't want to overwhelm you too much, but about three miles from this church behind us, back on 20th Street, the North Carolina Baptists have went across the state and they have identified areas of lostness across, in North, across North Carolina. There's a website that you can look up. Maybe we can get this posted on our Facebook page or somewhere else where you can get connected to it. But you can look up by your address how close you live to lost people. And on 20th Street is the center. Imagine it's 20th Street. There's one particular address, 20th Street. Drop a little pin there. Draw a six-mile circle around that, that pin. You know how many people are in that circle? 6,000 people who have not made any kind of profession of faith in Jesus Christ. They take this from statistics, from, from Census Bureau, from all this stuff, that, that there are 6,000 out there that don't identify at all as Christ followers. 6,000. Two miles from this fellowship. Now, the first thing that struck me in El Paso is, is I can drive around all day long. I can, we drove around all day in this city, all parts of it, north, south, east, and west. You know how many churches I saw total? I'm talking about any denomination you want to name as far as mainline. How many Catholic churches I saw? How many Mormon tabernacle buildings that I saw? How many Jehovah Witness kingdom halls? You know how many I saw total in that entire city where we spent five hours riding around this city with a guy who was ecstatic about reaching this community? You know how many churches I saw? Less than 15. Folks, I can't walk 100 yards in any direction from this building and not walk into another church. And yet, there are 6,000 people blocks down the street from us, from every outside indication, are not following the Jesus you're following. So then the question is, how does El Paso reach that triangle? How does Hyde Park take ownership and responsibility of the Great Commission right in our back door. One of the beautiful things that's going to happen this summer, you'll hear more about it this week, is we're going to take a group to El Paso this summer. We're going to partner with Sun City Church, and we're going to do a camp 
for kids right at that El Dorado High School, and literally hundreds, maybe even thousands of kids could walk to that high school. There's so many people. But what's the Holy Spirit telling you to do? What is God saying to you? And, and are you being obedient? These disciples are being obedient to what Jesus told them to do. Remember what Jesus said, you're going to be witnesses to me. You're going to start in Jerusalem. Then you're going to go to Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost part of the world. So these, these 11 plus the rest, the 120 total, have the responsibility, now to get this, the responsibility to take the gospel globally, not just two blocks down the street. Now Jesus said, you're going to start in Jerusalem. You've got to start there. But before you start anything, before you start planning, before you start building committees, before you build a budget, before you get a building, before you do anything, you're going to gather in an upper room and you're going to wait for the Holy Spirit because if you leave or you begin without the Holy Spirit, this is going to be a work of man and it's going to fail. It's going to fail. So you go to the upper room and you stay there till Pentecost comes. And a new work of God in the world begins. Fifty days after Passover. So the Jewish people would have celebrated Passover. Fifty days later would have been Pentecost. And at Pentecost, people would gather from all over the Roman Empire into the, into the city of Jerusalem. And they're celebrating the harvest of the wheat. They're, they're celebrating the harvest that, that God has bountifully blessed them with. And they just come together and they have a big old party because God has blessed them with food and grain and resources. That's what's going on in the city of Jerusalem. So God has called this 120 to do something they can't do. God has this amazing thing that he does in your life. He'll call you to do something that you can't do by yourself. Oh my goodness, how many times has God put me in a situation where there's nowhere else to run but to him to accomplish what he's called me to accomplish? I know I have to be obedient, but I don't have the tools. I, I don't have the resources. So, so God, I've got to depend on you. 6,000 people down the street, 80,000 people in El Paso. I can tell you right now, that's bigger than any publicity stunt. It's bigger than any program this church can come up with. It's bigger than having the best worship team on, on the El Paso, Texas front down there. It's better than having the smoke machines and all the great stuff. It's bigger than an excellent children's ministry. It's bigger than just a Sunday school. It's bigger than this core team can accomplish on their own. And that's exactly why God does it. That's exactly why these 120 must Wait. So how do we do it? Do, do we have everything that we need? Do, do we have everything we need to accomplish the mission? If we, if we strip away, strip away the worship team, strip away the buildings, strip away the children's ministry, student ministry, and all the ministries that are going on on this campus and beyond, all we, we, we strip all that away. We get down to just the basics of what a church is, which we're going to talk about in the weeks ahead. Is that enough? Is it enough to have this and the Holy Spirit living inside of us to accomplish the mission that God has called us to accomplish? I would say unashamedly, unapologetically, yes. That's what you're going to see with this 120. 
So what did Pentecost provide for us? Let's take a look at it. Verse 12 of Acts 1. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. So remember, Jesus is with his disciples and they're at this mountain and, and Jesus tells them, you're going to be my witnesses. He's going to ascend back to the Father. And it's only about a three-quarter of a mile, maybe a mile difference from where they are. They can see the city of Jerusalem. And after he ascends, the angels remind them of what God had told them to do. So they begin to make their way back across the Kidron Valley, down through the Garden of Gethsemane, back into the walls of Jerusalem, and they go to an upper room. Now, that upper room, if we're not careful, we'll begin to think that this is the same upper room where Jesus washed the feet of the disciples, broke bread, and passed the cup. It's not. From everything that I can tell, this is a different location, a different upper room, probably a third floor, probably large enough to, to hold all 120 of these people. Notice who's there. Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. Verse 14 is incredibly important. What were they doing in the upper room? For this period of time that they have to wait until Pentecost comes, it's about seven days off. How long do they have to wait here? And what are they going to be doing in this upper room? Well, verse 14 tells us, All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. I get excited about verse 14. Here's why I get excited about it. You see that one accord, that, that little phrase, one accord? Maybe you've heard people say that, I would like for us to be praying together in one accord. It's maybe not a term we use a lot in our culture, but boy, does it have significant meaning in the Greek language. It's made up of two Greek words, and the two Greek words mean this. It means fierce and together. They were fiercely together. You know what that means for me? It means that they were unified together. People from all different walks of life. This 120 were made up of all different socioeconomic backgrounds, different ethnicity. There's women up in the upper room. I'll talk about that in just a moment. But in that upper room, there's 120 people. When you look across them, you've got tax collectors, Matthew. You've got fishermen, everyday laborers. You've got white collar, blue collar, everything in between. You've got people with, with wealth. You've got people with nothing. And they're all there. And you know what they are? They're fiercely together. Yeah, knowing that Jesus is resurrected has a way of doing that. Knowing that Jesus walked out of a grave alive has a way of bringing us together around that which is most important. So here they are. They're in the upper room. And what are they doing? They're devoting themselves. That word means steadfast. They are steadfastly, fiercely together. And what are they doing? They're praying. What else did they have to do? Did they have any idea of what they were about to embark on? Did they have any idea of what was going to be required of their life once they leave this upper room and the church begins? They had no clue. That's not a bad thing. They didn't know that they needed a budget. They didn't know that they needed buildings. They didn't know they needed a kid's ministry. They didn't know they needed all this stuff. The fact is that God can accomplish what He wants to accomplish without buildings, without anything else, without a worship team, without sound systems, without... We, we could be meeting in a tent or under a palm tree somewhere, and God can accomplish what He wants to accomplish, and He will, and He does. But it requires obedience. And these... 120 are already being obedient. They were devoting themselves to prayer together, praying together, praying 
together. There's something beautiful and amazing and incredible when people gather together to pray. You pray by yourself, absolutely. You have that time with Jesus each week that you absolutely will not allow anything to encroach on. That's wonderful and that's awesome. I'm going to tell you something. There is something powerful when two or three brothers, two or three sisters get together and they pray together. When I was in El Paso, the, the church knows that the mission they have is bigger than they are. So you know what they're doing? They're praying. They've been praying for months. They've been praying for that triangle. They've been praying for that first service. They, they've, been, they've even been, get this, they've even been praying for us by name. Because I talk with Tom on a regular basis, and I tell Tom what we're facing, what we're dealing, what we're going well. Tom knows about the 6,000 behind us, and that church in El Paso is partnering with us to pray for us that we will reach the 6,000 as they reach the 80,000. There's something beautiful when we come together and pray. You hear, you hear what God is doing in the life of another person. You hear their deepest deepest, most broken parts of their life as they pour themselves out before God and you're hearing this and then you join in with them with what they're praying about and something amazing and beautiful happens. And notice this, they were together with the women, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. When I read this, this just jumped off the page to me and I began to think about this. First of all, think about Mary, the mother of Jesus. She gets to witness and be part of the birth of the Messiah. And if that's not enough, out of God's grace, she is in the upper room at the birth of the New Testament church, that which her son died for, spilled his blood to make happen. She gets to witness that too. What an incredible blessing. She's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But not only that, there's some other women there. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna. I think the disciples who had wives, their wives are probably there. You may have heard in the news or blogs or wherever you, you read stuff, you, you might have read somewhere down along the line that the church, specifically the Baptist church, is some of the most, I don't know, backwards group of people because they oppress women. Right? You may have heard that somewhere. You may read it somewhere that, that the Baptist church, Christianity in general, oppresses women. Oh no, not at all. You read the New Testament and you begin to read what God did in history through the New Testament church and you see everything but that. You see women being elevated, not pushed down. And right here, Luke includes the women in his testimony of what's happening. And in this upper room, included in the New Testament church launch, is Mary and the women. I think that's beautiful. This was way outside the cultural norm for the day. No writer in Greek, no writer in this time frame would have ever included the women in this move of God, ever. We see that with Jesus. We see Jesus crossing those boundaries that was part of His culture because of His love and His mercy. But notice this also, and His brothers. That's interesting. Jesus had four brothers. So, so Mary and Joseph had other children. Now, this is a controversial thing. If you come out of Catholicism, this is a very controversial statement I'm getting ready to make. Jesus had four other brothers, and he had 
at least one sister, maybe more. Now these four brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, not Judas the betrayer, not Judas, it's already been mentioned. These brothers did not believe initially that Jesus was the Messiah. If you go back to John chapter 7, verse 5, it says there, for not even his brothers believed in him. Turn back to Mark chapter 3. I want to show you this. Mark chapter 3, of what they said about Jesus, his own brothers. The men, the men who were in his life, the men who watched the miracles and saw the wonders, heard the story from Mary herself about how Jesus was conceived, had a front row seat. Notice what these brothers say here in Mark 3. Jesus' ministry is getting more and more popular. Everywhere he goes, the crowds are gathering. So, so Jesus goes home, and the crowd gathers at his home, and he's with his family, and as he's with his family, there's so many people outside, and everybody's calling for Jesus to come out and heal and, and work miracles, and Jesus works miracles and heals people. And when his family hears it, they went out to seize him. This is verse 21, chapter 3. So when his brothers hear all this commotion, they go outside and they seize him. And this is what they were saying about Jesus, their own brother. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. I bet when you came to faith in Christ, you had some family members who said you were out of your mind. I bet they said something like this. I bet they said, yeah, it's just a phase. He's got religion. She's got religion. It's just going to be a matter of time. And they'll be back to the bottle and back to this and back to that. It's just, it's just something they're passing through. Jesus' own brothers doubted him and called him a nut. You have had people call you crazy for your commitment to Jesus. You've had people on your job because you carry a Bible with you or you open it up on your phone or, or you sit with lunch and you pray during lunch, those things that you are outwardly doing is your commitment to Jesus. You've had people talk about you and how crazy and nuts you are. Guess what? You're in good company because Jesus was called crazy by his own family, but not so here in the upper room. You see, something happened. Between the time that they're calling him crazy and the time that they're in this upper room, something happened to these brothers. You know what happened? I'll tell you what happened. The resurrection is what happened. They saw Jesus alive. And let me tell you something. That'll mess you up. Because you can't live with this whole idea that this world is just all there is when you have to face the reality of Jesus Christ, the righteous, who was dead for three days and now is alive. I've had this conversation so many times over the last many years that someone who doubts the gospel. And I will challenge that person through conversation. I will challenge that person, look, you go out and you try to find every argument you can find against a bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then let's get back together and let's talk. So they'll get on. You know what they're going to do, right? They're going to Google search it. They're going to Google search and they're going to come up and there's usually about five primary arguments that always comes up against the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Then we get back together and we talk. And then through Scripture and through just basic reason, those arguments get destroyed. And you know where we end up? Right back where we started, that something happened at that tomb. Something happened that has changed the world, that Jesus Christ the righteous did in fact beat death, and He and His resurrection changes everything. These 
four brothers are in the upper room. Well, they've got a little biz business to take care of, and this business that they've got to take care of comes out of deep hurt. The disciples were shocked at what Judas did. You would have been too, right? I mean, if you've been betrayed deeply, you know, that's, that's really painful. They, they spent three and a half years with Judas. There were parts and times along the way that there was concern about Judas, but, but he was one of the twelve. And here they are in the upper room, and they're really wrestling with what Judas has done. Luke's account gives us a little bit more detail as to what happened to Judas. Verse 17, listen to this, For he was numbered among us, and was allotted his share in this ministry. Notice the past tense. He was allotted. But Judas made a choice. And that choice to betray, no doubt, hurt the other 11 significantly. I would imagine in this upper room, there's anger. I would imagine there's hurt. There's pain. There's why, what in the world happened? Why did this happen? How did this happen? It seems as though Jesus knew what was going to happen all along. Why didn't he do something? I would imagine all of that is still going on in the minds of these people in this upper room. But Peter, and rightly so, is going to deal with it. Look at verse 20. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Psalm 69, 25. May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one who dwell in it. And then in Psalm 109, verse 8, let another take his office. You know what Peter says here? Peter says that it was in the sovereignty of God that Judas did exactly what he did. That Judas betraying Jesus, God has turned that around and turned it into something amazing and beautiful, a crucifixion, a burial, a resurrection, and an ascension. It was all in the plan of God. So he looks at the 120, he says, now look, we need to focus here and we need to find somebody to fill his position because guess what? We got to move on. We got to move on. Folks, there's some stuff you need to move on from. Can we just stop here for a minute? There is some things in your life. There is some hurt in your life. There is some betrayal in your life. It's time to move on. Dwelling there, staying there is keeping you from focusing on what God has clearly told you to do And when God speaks, but God, remember what that person did. God is saying, fine. I've given you forgiveness. Isn't it time you forgive them? Move on. It was incredibly important for Peter to deal with this right now. So what do they do? They set some criteria. They had to be a witness of his resurrection. They had to be there with him. From John the Baptist and the baptism all the way through his ministry, resurrection, ascension. This is who we're looking for. There was a few who fit the criteria. They pray and they seek God's will. They cast lots to determine what is God saying here. And it fell to Matthias. Are you struggling with unbelief? Are you struggling with the whole idea of who Jesus is? I had a conversation not long ago with a person who is no matter what questions they get answered, there's always a 50 more questions that comes along with it. They're lost. They don't know Jesus. They're seeking. They're trying to understand. And here's what's happening. I'll answer their questions, and then 50 more questions come. And I answer those 50, and another 50 come. And it just comes to a point in time where you've got to accept Jesus for who he is and walk by faith and not by sight. It's faith that brings you into the kingdom. And we can answer all the questions, and some of the questions won't have answers. 
It still comes back to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and your faith in Him and being willing to turn away from your old life. Repentance. That's what brings you from darkness into light. This church was, or this 120, were unified fiercely. They were praying steadfastly. But then notice what happens. That was all introduction, by the way. Now we're ready for chapter 2. Don't be looking at your watch. I see you. Don't look at that watch. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they've been in that upper room. They've been praying. They've been waiting. And then the day of Pentecost arrived. The city is bustling with activity. The city is filled to capacity with people from all over the Roman Empire, Jews who've come into the city to worship God for the harvest of the grain. It's a happy time. It's a joyful time. They were all together in one place. I love that. They were all together. Nobody's defected. Nobody's bailed. Nobody's left. Nobody's got tired of waiting. Nobody got fed up with the steadfast prayer. When are we going to do something? When when are we going to get out into the streets of Jerusalem and tell people about Jesus? Nobody defected. Everybody's in the upper room, and they're all doing exactly what Jesus said, and that is to wait. And now Pentecost has arrived. And suddenly, isn't that how God works? And suddenly, something blows up. And suddenly, there's a move of God. And suddenly, that person you've been praying for gets under conviction about their own sins, and they fall on their face before a holy God, and they call you up and say, I don't know what to do, but I need help. All of a sudden, there's a breakthrough. But this breakthrough is unlike anything the world has ever seen. And suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. I don't believe there was papers blowing around the room. The Bible says it was the sound of a rushing wind. Sound like, I would imagine that it sounds something like a, a 50-car freight train, but no wind. I would imagine that the 120 in their upper room, their knees are beginning to knock together because when you come into the presence of a holy God working like this, uh, you, there's, everything falls to the background. And every time that I find individuals in Scripture who are in the presence of a holy God, there is fear, there is respect. You know, we have this idea that when we get to heaven, we're going to ask God all these questions. We're going to demand answers. No, you're not. You remember what I read in Revelation 5? Everybody falling on their face before a holy God. That is what you're going to do. Because all those questions you've got won't matter anyway. Right? Divided tongues. The best that we can describe this is it looked like a physical tongue, but it was fire. A lot of pictures and paintings that I've seen, it was lighting upon the top of their heads. Some have it over their chest. I really don't know. The Scripture doesn't tell us. It's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. All I know is, is there's fire that looks like the shape of a tongue that is lighting upon them. The presence of the Holy Spirit is there. And then the Holy Spirit does something that has never been done before. He indwells the 120. You see, when the Holy Spirit indwells you, takes control of your life, and we surrender to the work that the Holy Spirit's doing, amazing things begin to happen. 
in this context and what God is doing here, this specific work that God is doing here, they begin to speak in languages they didn't know. Well, there's a real good reason for that. And there's a real good reason why God chose in eternity past to do this work at exactly the time when all of the nations have gathered in Jerusalem to worship Jehovah God for the grain harvest. You know why that is? You know why God's doing it at exactly this moment? Because at the very inception of the New Testament church, it is immediately about those people in the street. Those people who've not heard the gospel, those people out there who spoke all different languages, immediately upon the filling of the Holy Spirit, God directs their attention outside of that building to the people in the street who need to hear the gospel. And so it is today. God is doing exactly the same thing or wanting to do exactly the same thing that he directs our attention outside of a building to those outside who have not heard. The church exists for the ones who haven't heard the gospel to the nations. This is a different speaking in tongues than what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14. This spills out into the street. We'll see that next week. The people who were in Jerusalem, the majority of them would have spoke common Greek. So they would have been able to communicate with one another through common Greek. But each one of these groups of people that is named in the text, I won't go through all of them, they all had their own local tribal dialect and their own local tribal language. And when this 120 spills out of that upper room, guess what they're doing? They're speaking in that local tribal dialect that nobody expected anybody in Jerusalem to know. You know why? Because God's heart is for the nations who haven't heard. So what has Pentecost provided for the New Testament church? I want to give you three things that I see right here that we have today as a New Testament church. First of all, this event at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit falls, first thing that I want you to see is that it becomes very, very personal. Our walk with Jesus becomes very, very personal, just like it was with the disciples who walked with Jesus. Let me, let me illustrate this. So, so the disciples, the 12, were deeply concerned about Jesus returning back to the Father and them having to continue without Him. How in the world would they be able to continue without Jesus' teaching, His works and His wonders? How could they continue on? And, and not only that, how could the New Testament church launch and continue without Jesus' presence with them? That's a viable question. Well, the Godhead Trinity had that figured out the eternity past. It was always God's intention that God would live inside the person at this moment, in this moment forward. So how is it that we're going to still have a personal walk with Jesus, although Jesus is ascended back to the Father? Well, the Holy Spirit, at the moment you expressed faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit took up residence in your life. Disciples of Christ, hear me clearly. God lives in you. I can tell you right now, wrapping my arms around that, you can read all the theology books you want to, and they go into all kinds of depth about all the different positions on this, but I'm going to tell you something. There's not a book I've read yet that's helped me to get my arms around the idea, the reality that God lives in me, yet it's true. 
as messed up and as broken as I am, God would take me and fill me with his presence through the Holy Spirit for the sole purpose of doing what he's called me to do? It gets very personal. So when Jesus is walking with his disciples, you know what Jesus does? He holds the disciples accountable. Jesus knows the very thoughts of their heart, the contents of their mind. He knows that they're being motivated for part of the ministry. He was with them. He knows that they're being motivated by getting an influential part, position in the kingdom. He knew that. And the disciples were always blown away at the fact that Jesus already knew what they were thinking before they ever said it because he's God in the flesh. Guess how that continues? In the Holy Spirit who lives in you. Jesus' work, his teachings, the very one who inspired men to write this lives in you. You see, I don't think it's about the lack of knowledge. I think it's about the lack of obedience. The Holy Spirit living in us requires us to yield to him. Sitting there just a few minutes ago, and I had all kinds of reasons not to get up and read Revelation 5. Well, Worship says a little longer today. We might run past noon. Uh, I ran f- over on the first service. I probably shouldn't get up and read this and take more time. And the Lord said, read it. Don't give any comments. Don't give any explanation. Read it. So I did. It's about obedience. Following Jesus is personal personal walk through Him, with Him, abiding in Him, walking with Him, that happens through the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you. Secondly, so following Jesus is personal after Pentecost, very personal to every one of you. Second, it's provided a power that we don't have. I took a lot of, um, went to a lot of church planting things back when I was working on my master's degree. I I really thought that God was going to call us to plant a church. I really did. There was a period of time there where I really thought I was going to plant a church. And a a lot of the church planting conferences I went to, at one point in time, it seemed like they were all the same. And they were all telling you that that to guarantee to have a 200 people on your launch day, you had to have the best band, the best music. You had to have the best lead guitar, the best drums. You had to have the most contemporary music. You had to have the best this, the best that. And if you do all those things, then people show up and they participate in what you're doing as as though they're going to be consumers consuming the product that you're selling. You know what I find here and what we're going to see over the next few weeks? Exactly the opposite. Exactly the opposite. These guys have no budget, no money, no buildings. They have no seminaries. They don't even have the full canon of Scripture, yet Jesus has said to them, you've got to go to the nations. How are they going to do that? They can't. That's the point. How are we going to reach these 6,000 people behind us? How can we do it? We can't unless we are obedient to the Holy Spirit. Provided a power we do not have. This power is not, be clear about this, this power in us, this power in the body of Christ, this power is not about us building up a name for ourselves. It's not about Hyde Park becoming the central focus of all things. It's not about having our name on every single thing in this community. It's not about 
me being on some big platform. It's not about any of that. The power that is given was meant to drive us out into a lost and broken world. And quite frankly, folks, apart from the Holy Spirit, we got nothing. We got nothing. So following Jesus becomes very personal at Pentecost. It provides a a power that we do not have in ourselves. And then third, it breaks down barriers. I love this. So you've got people from Parthenians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia. I'm in verse 8 following. Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Ferga, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya, coming from Cyrene, visitors from Rome. You got Jews, proselytes, Cretans, and Arabians. You got them all. You got them all right there in Jerusalem. And what is God's focus of this power and this work that he's doing? That focus is immediately outside the walls of that building across ethnic and cultural lines. Those people out in those streets who do not know Jesus, God is intimately concerned about them hearing the gospel so much so that he empowers this 120 to speak in ways they've never spoke before. The Great Commission says to go make disciples of all nations. That word nations, ethne. God has brought the world to us here in little old Robinson County. You don't have to drive around much in town to see it. Did you know that that God's love and His grace goes beyond your ethnicity and your culture? I know you know that. What else in the world What else do you know of in the world can bring together so many different people from every culture, every race, every ethnicity, keep that ethnicity intact, yet unify them under something grander and beautiful that that transcends all borders? In other words, the church in Africa that are worshiping this morning, they worship different than us. I don't know if you know that or not. The underground church in China, they're having to be very quiet. So the way they're worshiping this morning is very different than the way we worship. The church is exploding in places like Iran and Iraq. And by the way, the explosion of the church in Iran, guess who's leading that explosion? It's the women who've been in bondage to Islam. God's gospel, the good news, is for every nation, every tongue, every tribe, And when we gather on the other side in that day, whenever that day is, you're going to look around. You're going to look around. In that moment when we're all together worshiping Jesus, you're going to look around and you're going to see people from all over the world in that place worshiping the King of kings and Lord of lords. God in His beauty and power at Pentecost is undoing what happened thousands of years previous at the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. You remember that? Genesis chapter 11. The people were getting arrogant and they were getting prideful and they built a tower that would reach even up to the gods. They were becoming gods themselves. And God says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go down there and I'm going to confound their language and I'm going to spread them all over the globe. And you go thousands of years later, and what is God doing at Pentecost in this upper room as it spills out into these streets? God is reforming, redoing what happened all the way back at Babel, that through the church, the world is going to come back together, all different cultures, under the banner of Jesus Christ the righteous. I think that's beautiful. 
So you may be wondering, is there any place in the world that there is a move of God happening? I've been, been reading a lot because I want to know if there's movements of God where lives are being changed. I, I want to know. And you know what I keep coming back to? The exact same things I find at Pentecost. Steadfast prayer together individually. But there's something that I see over and over again. Churches that are wanting to make the impact, to reach people for Christ, they're praying together. I see radical obedience. The Holy Spirit says something, they do it. A commitment to Scripture and teaching, teaching the faith. Listen. Discipleship, making disciples is not about more knowledge. It's not about pouring more theology into your brain. Yes, that's important. Yes, you got to know what the Bible says. But listen, it's about obedience. It comes down to, are you being obedient to what you've been taught? We can work hard to separate obedience out, but we're going to come back to it every single time. Is Jesus coming up in your home? Is Jesus coming up at your workplace? But is there anything going on in the world? Well, it's amazing to me. In 2000, a young couple, a young at the time, Ying and Grace Kai, they're Asian couple, they get a burden, a calling from God to go to Northwest Asia. They're a little bit vague about where it is because this work is still continuing. But they go to this area where there's a lot of factories, a lot of big factories. And there are hundreds of thousands of people who go to work in these factories every day. And they, they begin to get burdened. They begin to get burdened for this area. And they begin to pray. And they say, okay, God, what would you have us do? So they, they begin to pour themselves into Scripture and learn about, about how Jesus made disciples and then how the disciples make disciples. And they just take what's in Scripture and say, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to teach obedience. We're going to teach the Word. We're going to gather people together. We're going to pray, and we're going to see what God does. So they begin to pray. And they had a goal that first year. They had a goal that first year of starting 200 churches. That's a pretty aggressive goal. 200 churches in a communist country? But that's what the Lord put on their heart. They reached 200 churches in three months. Then him and his wife got together and said, okay, now what do we do? Well, they kept going. After a year, one year, 53,430 baptisms. Folks, this is not pie in the sky. This stuff has been validated. There's teams that have went in there from all over the world to see, is this really true? And when they went in there to verify it, they came out and said, it's bigger than what's being reported. 53,430 baptisms, 3,500 churches in one year. Nine years later. Nine years later. Now, this is among both college graduates, people who are impoverished, all different backgrounds. Nine years later. 1.7 million baptisms and 159,000 churches. That's now, right now. Lord, forgive us of our pessimism. 
Father, forgive us. <clears throat> Father, forgive us when we think that that kind of power is no longer available. Forgive us, Father, when we take when we take charge and we take control and we come up with our plans and our schemes and we leave you out of the mix. Well, I, I don't even know what kind of sacrifices this couple has made and certainly there's been many, but I can't wrap my mind around how your work is moving forward in such a powerful way in places where you can be killed for naming the name of Jesus Christ, where there are people in consecration camps right now who don't have anything to eat simply because they follow you. But then I'm reminded, Father, you haven't changed. Your power hasn't changed. Your love for the nations hasn't changed. So, Father, what has? Well, I have. Distractions. Following lesser gods. Caught up in my own little world. Complaining. Trying to build my own little kingdom. So, Father, you haven't moved an inch. What you did at Pentecost, what you've done down through the thousands of years since Jesus ascended back to the Father, you still want to do. But it's going to take a group of people fully yielded. We can't accomplish this without obedience. So, Father, for the ones in the room who still doubting, still wanting their questions answered, still, still laboring to figure it all out rather than expressing faith and turning from a broken life. Father, today, the, today's the day of salvation. We're not guaranteed tomorrow anyway. May they surrender. Father, for the ones in this room who have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, not more knowledge we need. What is needed most is obedience. Father, move among the hearts of the people here who name you as their King and their Savior and their Lord. For the 6,000 down the street from us, they're going to spend eternity in one of two places. And when we stand before you, I am certain that that's going to come up. So Father, break us now. Humble us now. Align our priorities now so that we can be effective in doing what you called us to do. We love you. We thank you. We praise you. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist.